Our Old Testament reading today is Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Our New Testament reading is from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. The word of the Lord. My name is Dave Stadler. I'm an elder here at EP, and I want to welcome Chuck Garriott and his wife, Debbie. Uh, they are visiting with us today. Chuck is the founder and the executive director of Ministry to State. Ministry to State is a uh, ministry within the Missions to North America of the PCA. And Ministry to State seeks to minister to the spiritual needs of elected and appointed government officials at both the federal level here in Washington and at the state level. Um, as you might suspect, there are a lot of people um, who want something from government officials, uh, but there are, is almost no one who wants to minister to them. And uh, I think Ministry of State fills uh, a very critical niche uh, in terms of uh, spreading the gospel. I met Chuck about five years ago uh, and have grown to greatly respect his ministry. He very uh, warmly welcomed me onto his team uh, and has helped us uh, here in Annapolis to grow a ministry at the State House. Uh, he has also off, uh, authored several books, uh, which he will talk a little bit more about. What I like most about Chuck is uh, really, if you spend any time with him, there are two things that'll jump out. One is he's very humble, and second, he is very concerned for people. Uh, and in Washington, uh, those two things make you sort of stick out. Uh, people are curious. Uh, there's, there's, uh, if you're humble and if you care for people, um, it, it sort of draws them and uh, they want to know uh, why that would be the case. So without further ado, I will introduce Chuck, who will be teaching us from Mark chapter 10. Dave, those very kind words. Thank you, uh, brother, for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Ministry to State, which began to develop in Washington, D.C. about 20 years ago, as David said, is for the person. We're not there for the politics. And I so much appreciate this brother and his wife Jamie's emphasis here in Annapolis in terms of your state house with those who are making significant decisions for the people of the state. And it's very critical that as a church, we have a sense of responsibility to enter into those places 
with and for the sake of the gospel. And I appreciate so much your encouragement to them uh, as, as they carry out that kind of responsibility. Dave mentioned uh, some of the books that we've put together over the years. Uh, I brought one with me today. It's called Love and Power, Glimpses of the Gospel for Those Addicted to Self. Now, you can imagine that in a place like Washington, D.C., that's going to be a best, bestseller, right? <laughs> and, uh, but uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at today, Mark chapter 10, really is the foundation of that book. And the book fundamentally was uh, written off of the uh, different Bible studies that we have put together uh, in regards to the topic of repentance. And so we have brought some here. You, you'll find them in the lobby afterwards, and they're complimentary. There isn't, there's no charge. We're just glad if you would uh, be uh, encouraged by it, it's yours. And uh, we hope that uh, you'll continue to pray for ministry to stay. I'd like to draw your attention to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 17. We'll go down through verse 27. Before we read this, let me say one other thing, and that is, is that I know that when we come together as God's people to worship, all of you have different stories in regards to what's taken place this past week. Some of you have had incredible weeks. You've You've been celebrating. There have been things that have happened that have been encouraging to you. Others of you have found that this week hasn't gone so well. Or maybe it's just been a continual story of just how difficult life has been. And so I understand that whenever we come together as God's people and we're worshiping and we're looking at his word, that you're going to filter this passage and then the things that I'm saying, hopefully that will expound on this passage, but you're going to filter it in such a way that it's going to be maybe even different than what I might have expected. But my hope for you as a congregation, as a people of God, as individuals, as you leave here today, as you go into the week, regardless of what you might discover and with whom, that you will find it to be an opportunity to expose those people around you whether it be in your family or in your neighborhood or in the workplace or at the gym, whatever, a school, but that you'll be in a better position to expose them to the gospel. So with that said, please join me as we read together Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around 
And he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Will you pray with me? Father, before we go any further, it's, it's essential that your Holy Spirit would be at work within our midst. I pray that you would protect me, that you would keep me from doing anything that would somehow take away what you have for us today in this passage. And I pray that at the end of all of it, that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now this passage ought to cause a number of questions. For example, why are we not given his name? Like, what is that about? In most, in most accounts within the Gospels, you know, someone comes and they're interacting with Jesus. You know their names. They're being healed. There are other concerns going on. You know their names, but not here. We don't know his name. I sometimes wonder if this man may be a sort of a prototype for the, the, the older brother. If maybe that is sort of his real essence, his background. When we read this passage about this man who had all these, had this one basic question, but with all this baggage, you might say, we realize that he comes to Jesus with some very significant concerns and he leaves disappointed and sad. We're told that his face was downcast. What is it like to approach Jesus and leave disappointed? Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? Wouldn't you think that anyone who comes to Jesus who has a legitimate concern, who has real issues within his or her life, that when they leave, they have been ministered to. Why didn't Jesus just say, well, let's just deal with what we have here. Let's take him along. Look, for right now, just double your tithe, okay? Just double your tithe and you'll be okay. But he doesn't say that at all. What would have happened if he had said that? Well, we want to find out. We need to dig into this passage. And we need to understand that Jesus, as he instructs the man, he also, as he's debriefing his disciples, he's wanting them to understand some very important things in regards to the topic, and even though the word is not used here, the topic of repentance. Repentance, meaning that when you are going in one direction in your life, and this man, this rich young ruler, was definitely going in one direction in his life, Christ was calling him to change his mind, the way in which he was thinking, and go in a different direction. That's what repentance is in a, in a nutshell. 
And repentance is a significant part of the gospel. There really is no gospel application unless there is true repentance in our lives. And not only is it something that takes place at one point in time, but it is to be a continual part of our walk with Christ. There are three things I would like you to look at here in this passage. First is what it means in terms of the self, the word I. Secondly, the difficulty of sight here in this passage. And thirdly, Christ as Savior to this man. First of all, in regards to self. You'll note that as the man comes to Jesus, he says to him, good teacher, very respectful, honoring Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's normally how we read it. But now I want you to read it or look at it again and look at it this way. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why is that significant? Why is that word I significant for us to just stop for a moment and ask some questions? What is that all about? Now we're told that he's rich. We're told that he's He's a ruler. What does that mean? Well, we believe that probably to a great extent it, it indicates or implies the fact that he was a ruler within a synagogue, that he was a leader within a synagogue. We know that he's Jewish. We know that he, he, was, he was brought up in a family where he was taught the Torah, where he was brought and he was circumcised among the people of God. We know that in every way, his, his ethics, his uh, world and life view was Jewish in every way, shape, and form. But we also know that he was quite successful. We know that for some reason, as Mark is describing this man, instead of giving his name, he is accenting his wealth, a rich young ruler, and Mark in the other passages accent those, those three different aspects. What does it mean, by the way, to be wealthy? I saw this one description whereby the definition of being wealthy is when your child is being tutored and in the midst of the lesson interrupts the lesson and goes to the window and says, I hear my father is." Look, see, he's come home. And as you look out the window, the father is landing on the front yard with a helicopter and gets out, right? So if you can, if you can describe yourself in those kind of terms, then you're wealthy. There are, other, there are other more practical descriptions of people who are wealthy. You might look at their net worth, right? You might look at the way in which they have developed uh, successful businesses, you might, in some ways, look at the clothes that they wear. I never really thought about this much in terms of, of people's clothing, but a number of years ago, I was in one of the hotels in Washington, and I was, was walking around this one part, and I noticed there was this very little uh, boutique kind of men's clothing. Now, 
if you wear this type of clothing, please don't, don't take me wrong here, but I had never heard of it before. I'm pretty much a $200 sports coat kind of guy. And as I walked in, I could see this was very specialized clothing. And to make the long story short, the guy began to describe the clothing. And I became just stunned by how much people would pay for, for this type of clothing. But he, he then described to me the, the wool and the sheep and the mountains uh, in different parts of the world. And, and so then I finally asked him, I said, well, for that sports coat, what are we talking about? Oh, he said, that sports coat, that's $8,000. And so how many of you have that on today? <laughs> and, then, and then I said, well, how much is a suit? Well, a suit would be eleven dollars to $12,000. Okay. So I wanted to leave pretty quick because I thought I don't even, like, I wasn't going to ask him if I could try anything on. But then I finally, before I left, before I left, I asked the man, I said, well, what might be the most expensive suits that you sell here? And he said, oh, well, they would be like 60000 and I thought, oh, what is it like to wear a $60,000 suit, right? All right, now maybe you don't wear a $60,000 suit, but let's understand that if you were even tempted to think about that, you're making a rather large statement. And again, going back to this word I, you're basically saying, I am in charge of my life, and I have been so successful in such control that I can wear a $60,000 suit. And maybe I have a couple of them in the closet, or in the cupboard, or in the closet there, hanging. That may not be your definition of wealth, but for the most part, I think it's fair to say that most of us here, living in this part of the world, under these circumstances, compared to a large portion of the world are incredibly wealthy. And we have, whether we like to admit it or not, fundamentally that same kind of mindset that I am in control. That when I think about my life, I know where I'm going, how I'm going to get there. And this is a picture of the rich young ruler. He is in control. And so when he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's saying to Jesus, I just need a little counsel here. One of the things that I've learned in the business world is that if I surround myself with the right kind of people, they will coach me, they will guide me, they will direct me in the direction that I need to go with my business, with my concerns, with my stock portfolio, with my cars, whatever the case may be. I just need some help and counsel. And that is how he is viewing Jesus. Do you ever view Jesus that way? That he's kind of your helper. He's going to show you what's going on. Secondly, sight, condition of this man's ability to see. Repentance is very much based on realizing that I am not in control, that I am helpless. And here, if we ask the question, what is this man thinking when he comes to Jesus? We would respond by saying, well, he's honoring him. He calls him good teacher. He is down in the dust. 
He's on his knees in a $60,000 suit. And he's honoring Jesus. No, he's not. He's blind. Yes, he sees Jesus, again, as someone to be honored. But he does not see Jesus as God. As the one who has created this universe. As the one who knows all things. Who is totally sovereign. He sees a helper. And that's very, very different. If you go to Isaiah, for example, chapter 6, and you read that section there as Isaiah is confronted with the presence of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He then is saying, and I'm paraphrasing, help me. Because I am such a sinner. The rich young ruler did not see the fact that he was in the presence of God Almighty. And secondly, he did not understand his sin in his presence. And for us as God's people to enter into that relationship, we must first realize just how arrogant we are and how much in control we want to be of everything in our lives. But secondly, we also must understand that so often as we go through our lives, we just don't see God. And we're blind. And the passage that David read earlier from Ephesians is a reminder of that. That we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. And I don't think we have a real appreciation for what that means. Some years ago, Debbie woke me up in the middle of the night and she says, do you hear that? And I thought, oh, what is that noise? And as I looked out the window and she was instructing me and she's getting herself dressed and I'm thinking, where are you going in the middle of the night? I can see that there is a woman out on the street in front of our home and there's a man lying on the, on the street itself and there was a little boy next to them, and she is screaming at the top of her voice. I don't know all the things that happened, but somehow he was attacked, he got injured, and didn't know what else to do except to cry out for help. And she's screaming for help. Help me! And finally, Debbie goes out, and other people in the neighborhood come out, and they're trying to help this this poor man, this lady, and of course the uh, police and the uh, ambulance and others come to help him. But that is a picture of someone, for whatever reason, again, I don't know all the circumstances, but came to the point in their lives where she knew that the only thing she could do was to cry out for help. And if you are so full of the word I... And so blind in terms of, of what it means to stand in the presence of God and see your sin. You will never cry out. And you'll be more like, well, just show me what I need to do. But instead, if we really see our circumstances, and if this man really understood just how 
much in trouble he was. He would have never said, well, just show me what I need to do. Now, if you look at the passage, you'll note that when Jesus asked him about the law, where is he drawing from? He's drawing from the second half of the moral law. The second half that deals with our relationship with each other, right? But then what does Jesus do? Jesus then, after he hears his response, says, okay, fine. You, you, you think that you're doing really well there. And by the way, for you to stand here in front of these people and me and tell me that you've kept all the law since you were a child, now think about that one, will you? But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes on and he says, okay, we'll deal with that letter later, but let's, let's, let's then look at what really is going on in your life. Go sell all your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. Now what is Jesus doing? Now Jesus is putting the spotlight on the first part of the Old Testament in terms of having idols, having other gods. And the man, whether he puts it all together or not, I don't know. But he definitely understands that all those things have hold of his life and his very spirit, and he is not willing to follow Jesus at that point. And just doubling the tithe wasn't going to work. And so he goes away sad. But he doesn't come, he doesn't come to Jesus like the blind Bartimaeus does, who is sitting there begging on the road, and when he hears that Jesus is coming, he cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me. And if we as God's people, under our circumstances today, are not crying out, have mercy on me, we really don't understand our sin. And I'm, I'm talking about as believers. I know in my own life, in my own heart, that I go through a day and I offend God. And I'm not just talking about being broken. I'm talking about being in rebellion. As a believer, I struggle with sin. I struggle with, I struggle with the moral law. I struggle with loving people. I, I struggle with all kinds of things. As a believer, I came to Christ over 50 years ago. I'm still struggling with sin. Are you? Or do you say to yourself, well, I, I just need a little tweaking of things in my life and I'll be fine? No. If we really see ourselves in the presence of God, our holy God, and we really see who we are and our attitudes and the things that we've said and we didn't say and the things that we did and we didn't do that are offensive to him, we'll cry out for mercy. And this man needed to do that and he didn't. And that brings us to our third point, which is this issue of love, the Savior. Mark makes sure that he puts in this passage, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he instructed him in regards to what he needed to do, right? In order for us to understand the love of God, we need to understand just how much we love ourselves and our ways, and we need to repent of that. But also we need to understand the depth 
and the intricacies of Christ's love for us. Which is that God does not ignore our sin. He does not ignore Chuck Garriott's wayward ways. He is constantly going to be speaking to me through his word. And I need to hear that. I need to be reminded. I will forget things that I should remember. I will be reminded of things that maybe I've never really understood, but I need his word. And Jesus was very clear in speaking to this man that this is the way you need to go. This is the way you need to think. And you will not experience the love of Christ unless you are hearing from him. And all these things that we find in this passage that should not only humble us, but should also be, in a sense, a megaphone from the church, from the people of God, that God is working in these people's lives because they need it. And that's what the world should be seeing, not people who are saying, I've got it all together, but people who are dependent totally upon Christ. When we think about the repentance that is taught here in this passage, not only should it impact our own lives, but it should also give us as a church compassion for the world in which we live. That we realize that there are a lot of young, rich young rulers out there who are wearing their $60,000 Brioni suits and, and wonderful shoes. I haven't even talked about how much shoes will cost. And all these <laughs> wonderful clothing and, and are presenting themselves to the world and they're totally blind. We sh instead of like, speaking ill of them or being disgusted with them, we need to have compassion because we understand what it means to be so full of the eye and so blind by our lives that we don't really understand the love of Christ. And that should cause us to pray, not only for our own lives, but for the world around us. Right now, we should be really burdened by our world. We got two wars going on, and we don't know where they're going. The church needs to be the church that demonstrates repentance, not just as a work, but because the love of Christ is pouring in our lives and our hearts, and we've got an incredible message. And that message will best be delivered by people who in humility and by the grace of the Lord are able to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And if I need to give something up, that's okay. Because to be in your presence and to experience your love is so consuming that I'll give it up. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this church. Father, I've known about the reputation of this congregation for well over 50 years. I've known about how you have used this congregation, the pulpit ministry, the youth ministry, and many, many other ministries, the outreach to the Naval Academy, and the list goes on and on and on. And so I pray, Father, that you will continue to pour out your grace and your love 
in your kindness, and I pray that you will use them, not for their glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.